This morning we'll continue our study of the book of Joshua. We're clipping along here at about a chapter a week, so you're going to need to do your part and read it throughout the week so that we have the general backdrop. I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 3. I won't read the whole thing, but uh, start with verse 2. It says, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. Let's pray. O oh, great God of Israel, great God of the church, great God of heaven and earth, we ask you today to, to meet us where we are, to teach us from your word. As we've already discussed, we long for the return of our Lord Jesus, which will bring the greatest joy we could ever hope to imagine. Until then, we have work to do. So equip us today to do that work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In our, in our seminary here, one of the things that we talk about with our students on a regular basis is how the New Testament authors handle the Old Testament, what they draw from the Old Testament as they read and interpret it. And there are multiple themes that we see recurring in the New Testament, but three of them are these. Number one, God is mighty and majestic. You can't read the Old Testament stories without being in awe of this God who did the amazing things that we read about back there. Secondly, we learn about the faith of God's people. Abraham, willing to sacrifice his son because he trusted that God would raise him from the dead. 
Moses, of course, parting the Red Sea and leading the people out and so on. And, and David and Elisha and so on. We, we see these great men and women of faith in the Old Testament. But one of the recurring themes, one of the major themes that we need to get as we read the New Testament as how it goes back and looks at the Old Testament is how much better the New Covenant is than the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was good, it was great, but how much better is the New Covenant? And that's what we're gonna see in this story today. So the setting is that Israel has come up to the very edge of the promised land. This area that they have been waiting for for generations. They're at the Jordan River, and between Israel and the promised land is this giant obstacle, this river they need to get across. But right over there is what God had promised them many, many years ago. It was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. We hear that, at least I hear that, and I think, so? So? <laughs> Milk and honey, what, what's the big deal there? But we've got to remember for them, this was the symbol of great prosperity. Milk, a land flowing with milk, meant that they had plenty of grass and, and places for the, the, the animals, which was their prosperity, and that they were going to eat well and they were going to have an abundance of food. We sort of miss that. It, that doesn't mean anything to us. We have Walmart, we have... Kroger's and Safeways and Amazon.com, we have no concern that we might run out of food. But they didn't know how, when they were gonna get their next meal, especially if they didn't have grass, if they were in the desert, in the wilderness, that was a big deal to say right over there is a place where you will eat great food and never have to worry about it. That was a great promise. And then honey. Some of you don't even like honey. My wife doesn't like honey. But we don't understand how, how great a promise that was because everything we eat is filled with sugar. Every meal you eat, you can't have cereal. If you, if you parents present to your children cereal without sugar, they're not going to eat it without adding sugar to it. All of our sauces, everything we make is, we're just, a, we're sugar addicts is what we are. And it's not just on special occasions. Now, you know, Thursday was a, a, a good time to ingest sugar. I mean, I had my share of sugar on Thursday. Pumpkin pie, and, and you know the story. Some of you saw the Facebook post. Somebody was mocking me this week. I think they're in this room, in fact, with how much whipped cream you're supposed to put on top of pumpkin pie. If you can see what's underneath it, you haven't put enough on, right? Well, that's just pure sugar. And it's good to celebrate with that, but we have it in everything. The Jews didn't have that. Refined sugar was not part of their regular diet. Honey was one of the rare things they had that was sweet. So when God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, they couldn't think much bigger than that. Like this is a prosperous, wonderful place to be, especially for a people for the last 40 years had been wandering around in a desert and eating this stuff that God miraculously provided, but it didn't taste all that great apparently. They got tired of it quickly, this manna stuff that, that came down from heaven. And so what God was saying in this land flowing with milk and honey is, 
I'm going to bless you and prosper you, and you are going to enjoy the greatest things that human beings can imagine in this life. And so the Israelites are right there at this river, and they see the land that is before them, and that's the land that God had promised. They just needed to get over the Jordan. They needed to get through the river. And God says, I'm going to do that for you. And here's what's going to happen. Take the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests are going to carry that Ark into the Jordan and watch me part the river so the entire nation can go through the river, river on dry ground and get to the promised land. And the priests are going to carry it and stand there and hold it while the entire nation does that. So the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have a good visual imagery of this. It was a, it was a box. It was about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep, made by, uh, with acacia wood and overlaid with gold. But this was no ordinary box. This was a specific container God had required Israel to make, and inside the box, inside the ark, were placed the, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Those tablets of stone were the very constitution of the relationship that God had with Israel. Again, 40 years prior at Mount Sinai, some of these people were young children, but they could, would have remembered this. They were beside this mountain, and they saw smoke billowing up from the mountain. They felt the earthquake. They heard a trumpet blast. They saw the mountain on fire, and God spoke, and he told Moses, write down these things. Or actually, you bring the rocks. I'm going to write down my law, my Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments formed the, the, the heart of the relationship between God and Israel. And he gave them his covenant. He gave them his pact. And he said, here's the deal. If you will obey these commandments, and he expanded more, and there were, there were more through the book of Exodus, but they were all derived from these 10. If you will obey these 10 commandments, I will bless every aspect of your life. In your going out, in your coming in, in your rising up, in your lying down, everything you do, you will have many healthy children, all of your animals will have many healthy offspring, it will be heaven on earth. Now, he didn't use that terminology, but he said, I will prosper you in every way. You will rule over your enemies. You will conquer them. One of you will send seven of your enemies running, scared. Now, there was a downside. The contract also said, if you disobey, if you break my commandments, if you break my law, then just the opposite will happen. I will make the, the earth like bronze. I will shut up the rains from heaven and, and I will not pour out my blessing on you and, and one of your enemies will send seven of you running scared. But if you keep my law, it'll be wonderful. And I'm giving you this special group of men whose job it is to intercede for you on my behalf. The priests, they worked in the, in the tabernacle, later on in the temple, and their job was to perform sacrifices. Uh, the people would come and bring their animals as an as a, uh, expression of worship, but also as a, 
a symbol that we recognize that we are sinners and God's justice demands death and God will receive the death of these animals in our place and these priests, that was their job day in, day out to take these animals and sacrifice them and offer them to God on behalf of the people and to pray to God on behalf of the people and to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and on the temple and all the other artifacts and continue to plead with God to be gracious to the people. That was their job, that was their significance. And I, they, they splattered the blood on the top of the Ark because on the top of the Ark what is, it was what is called the mercy seat or the propitiatory it's a word we don't use every day, uh, 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 and you're thankful, right? Uh, this, this, the top where there was the two cherubim angelic creatures with the wings headed upward, and God said, I will come and meet with you as I will sit. I will, I will, that's like the throne of God. I will appear to my people on this throne, on this ark, on this mercy seat. And so the ark and the priesthood represented all of this, God's presence with the people, God's constitution or contract with the people, his abiding, reigning and ruling, and these intermediators who would, who would say to God, forgive them, Lord. And God says, when you see those priests step foot into that river, behold, I'm gonna do marvelous things among you, and I'm going to separate the waters so you can get into the promised land. There's one other thing that he said that I wanted to draw your attention to. In verse four, he says, however there shall be between you and it, that is the ark, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way. Interesting imagery there. Joshua says, the priest can go out ahead of you 2,000 cubits. That's, that's quite a ways. Uh, Cuba is about an inch and a half. Go out, watch as it goes, and you stay some distance so that you know where you're supposed to go because you've never passed this way before. One of the things that came to my mind as I was pondering this is just what a great image that is for us and how often we don't practice this. God, God here is saying, watch, my, watch for my lead. Stay back, don't just act, but pause a moment and watch where I am leading. And I thought to myself, how many decisions do we make week by week without pausing and taking a look, where is God leading? Did you make any decisions this week? Did you ask the Lord before each of those decisions, Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? I, I, I'm gonna pause here, I'm gonna look and see what you're doing. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask for your guidance. I mean, we proclaim that God is so sovereign over everything. We proclaim that God is the king of everything. He's the Lord of everything. And yet so often we make decisions as though he is irrelevant to these things in our life. Now the big ones, you know, the really big decisions, we're too scared often to make without asking him. But what about the little ones? Do we believe that God is involved in the little decisions as well? Now, you would all answer yes. You would get that right on the, on the test. 
but we show whether or not we really do believe that he's leading us in all of these things when we ask him to show us what he wants for us. There's something instructive there for us. Just, just, just pause before you make a decision. Say, let me look and see if God is out front and if this would be pleasing to him for me to go forward. We need that in everything. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through his spirit. He does it through his word. He does it through other Christians. Sometimes he just convinces us in our own hearts this is the way to go. But it is much safer, especially when we're going to do something like cross the Jordan River. It's much safer to go when we are sure he has said, I'm ahead of you. This is the direction I want for you to go. So then Joshua tells them to consecrate themselves and be ready because tomorrow God's going to do amazing things before them. I love what he says in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. If you were Joshua, these are some of the most encouraging words you could hear. They loved Moses. Well, not always. But they respected Moses. And Moses was the great leader through whom God had done amazing things. But Moses is dead. Remember, that's how Joshua begins. Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, you now lead my people. And Joshua had already shown great faith. He was one of those two spies that when everyone cried, the giants in the land are too big, Joshua said, no, we can take them because God will give us victory. So he had great faith, but now God says, I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to raise you up so that the people respect you just as, the, as much as they respected Moses so that you can lead these people and they will follow you into the promised land. And this whole event would have certainly grabbed the attention of these Jews and seen the comparison between Joshua and Moses. Forty years ago, Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they're leaving, having plundered the Egyptians. And then they come to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after them. And now they are stuck between probable death at the hands of Pharaoh and his army and certain death by being drowned in the sea. What are they going to do? God says, Moses, just raise up your arms, and I will separate the waters. And Moses raised up his arms, and God separated the waters, and the entire nation of Israel, millions of people, walked through this river on dry ground. They got through, they turned around and watched as Pharaoh and his army said, hey, great, let's go in after them. And then God brought the waters crashing down and destroyed them all. And this showed the people of Israel, God is with Moses. But Moses, my servant, is dead. God says, Joshua, I'm going to show them that I am not dead. And I'm going to exalt you. And he's going to separate the waters of the Jordan River. It's springtime. 
The banks are overflowing. The mountains nearby, all the snow in those mountains nearby would have been melting and in bringing the Jordan River past its flood stage. It's, it's that time of year, we're told later. And God says, I'm going to part the waters of the Jordan to show all of these people I am with you just as I was with Moses. Imagine being Joshua. All right, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing to lead these people if God is with me and if he's going to display his power in me the way he did with Moses, which is exactly what happens. So the priests go out, and as soon as they, their feet touch the waters, the waters part. We read, starting at verse 14, so when the people set out from their tent to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows it, all its banks on the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Do you believe that happened? We know these stories, oh, but just imagine it. I mean, there are creeks nearby that we would be a little hesitant to go across. If you've spent any time among rivers and, and bigger creeks, you know there's often a current under there that's a little bit dangerous. I have found myself more than once in places, we, somebody asked, uh, we, we were at a, a get-together and somebody was, we were talking about near-death experiences. And one of mine was when I was a kid and I went to a river and someone had put a, a, a rope swing on the river and it was one of the greatest joys of my life, swinging out on this, on this rope swing as far out of the river as I could, right? We did that all day long. You just fly out there and you swim back and you fly out there and swim back. Well, I must have caught some wind or something because I went further than most and next thing you know, I am screaming down the river. And I was about 10, 11, 12 years old and I was convinced I was gonna die. I couldn't fight the current. It swept me away. And it was my friend's dad who saved my life. At least I'm convinced of that. <laughs> you know how kids are. Maybe I look back and it, you know, it was only this deep. I don't know. But at the time, I was convinced I was a goner if Mr. Mauser had not come and saved me. Have you ever tried to cross a stiff creek, much less a river? This river, by the way, that in Missouri that I was swimming in, it's called the Current River. <laughs> it had some serious speed. And again, I'm from St. Louis. I mean, I'm used to the Mississippi River, the Missouri River. Those are big rivers. This is no small event. God parted the waters of this river so that millions of people could walk through. Do you really believe that? I mean, look at the 
obstacles in our way of doing what God has called us to do, if he can part that river, he can handle whatever obstacles are in our way. Don't be so familiar with this story that you don't really believe God did this. And the cynics, the skeptics will say, no, no, there was an earthquake. And there are other examples in history where earthquakes stopped the river for a while. Well, I don't know what means God used, but the timing, exactly when those priests go in the waters, an earthquake or whatever God uses to stop it so they can walk through, hey, praise God, he did that. I don't know if he used the earthquake. I don't know if he used wind like he did at the Red Sea. But God did that so they could walk through. This was all part of the promise. I will take care of you. I will display my glory. I will prosper you. The people of Israel had a really good covenant. It was a good one. If you obey me, I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will, rule, I will have you rule over your enemies. That was a good covenant. And here's a good land flowing with milk and honey. But you know, when we come to the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament say, yeah, that was a good covenant with a good mediator and good promises, but we are in a covenant with a better mediator and better promises. That Ark of the Covenant that contained that contract those Ten Commandments also had the curses we talked about. If you disobey, I will punish you. When we come to the new covenant, the contract that God has made with us in Jesus Christ, he says, I forgive all your sins. He doesn't say, if you disobey me, I will punish you. He says, if you disobey me, I will discipline you. I will correct you as a father corrects his son not because I'm furious, not because I'm angry, not because I'm against you, but because I love you and I'm going to shape your character. I'm gonna teach you to do things differently. That is a very different mindset than God's promise to Israel that if you disobey, I will destroy you. This is a better covenant, better promises. God says the priests for Israel were to perform all these sacrifices and mediate. But they were human beings who had their own sin. This is what the writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time teaching. These men had to first perform sacrifices for their own sins before they could perform sacrifices for the sins of the people. And the sacrifices were a reminder every day, you are guilty, you are guilty, you are guilty. Another sacrifice needs to be brought because you're guilty. In the new covenant, Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice once and for all, once and done, and now he says to us over and over again, you are righteous, you are righteous, you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are forgiven, you're innocent, you're innocent, you're pure, you're pure, you're holy, you're holy. That is a better covenant. The constant reminder that he has already done the work on the cross and we are forgiven. That we are pure, that we are holy. In the Old Covenant, they had the promise of that land flowing with milk and honey. He's not promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. Think about this. You realize the United States of America in the 21st century 
experiences far more prosperity and temporal blessing than even Canaan's land did for Israel. We have far better tasting food, far more abundance, far more military power. They could not have imagined what it would be like to live in America in 2020. I know we're all down on 2020. <laughs> it's been a rough year. But it's still greater pleasure and joy and prosperity than any people in the history of the world. In the new covenant, God does not promise that we're going to have temporal prosperity yet. What he does promise is that the second advent when Jesus comes back, he will destroy all of our enemies. And he's not talking primarily about nations. He's talking about the greatest enemy, Satan, his angels, and the last enemy, which is death. As great as life can be today, we all know we are heading for the grave. There's no getting around it. There's no escaping it. It's where we will all end up. But when Jesus comes back, he will put an end to death forever. He will raise us up to live in new bodies and we will live with him on a redeemed, glorified earth forever and ever with every bad part of existence completely gone. And the joy and the blessing and the pleasure and the excitement beyond our wildest dreams. I, I, I've told you this before, you can't out-imagine God. You can't think of greater blessing than God can. When the Bible describes what we're waiting for, a lot of it is in the form of negation. He has to tell us what's not there because he can't fully describe what is there because we wouldn't get it. There's no death, no tears, no mourning, no pain, no sorrow, no sin of any kind. And he talks about walking on streets of gold and having crystal walls and all that, but I don't think that's literal. I think those are just things that he's trying to say, it's gonna be greater than you could possibly dream. And that's what we're waiting for. The new heavens, the new earth. And it will be ours because we're in a new covenant where God does not say, do this and live. He says, believe this and live. It's a better covenant, better mediator, better promises, better hope, better promised land. Now what do we do between now and then? We complete the mission. The Israelites had a mission. I'm gonna take you into the promised land, I'm gonna part the waters for you to walk across, but they had to go into all of these city-states, all these nations, and their mission was to conquer those nations with the sword. We will see that in upcoming weeks. In the new covenant, we have a far greater mission. We're to go into all the nations, all the regions around us, all the cities around us, all the neighborhoods around us, and we are not to conquer them, we're to convert them, not with the sword, but with good news. 
Now here's where we can use 2020 to our advantage. People are desperate for some good news. And if you point them to the hope of 2021, oh, 2021's gotta be better than 2020, you're missing an opportunity. Next year can't be any worse than this one. After New Year's, it's all gonna get better, right? We'll turn the page, we'll close the book on 2020. Oh yeah? Maybe. Has God promised us that 2021 is going to be better than 2020? Has he said, you know what? January 1st, boom, pandemic over. January 1st, boom, all the political problems gone. Of course he's not promised us any of that. We could be in for a real doozy. This might just be the warm-up. I don't know. People are desperate for good news. We have it. And he has given us a mission, a better mission, not to go kill people and destroy them. Remember the Jews, the Israelites, were God's instrument of judgment upon all these nations in the promised land. We talked about that last week. It's a sobering message. We are not the instruments of judgment for the world. We are the instruments of salvation as we preach the good news to people and say there is real hope there is real joy awaiting all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a better mission. And we are all the new Israel called by God himself to complete that mission. We're in the Christmas season. I know it doesn't exactly feel like it, does it? I don't know, there's something normally, Thanksgiving is the great turning point in our family, and Friday we, we put up the decorations, we put up the tree, it's just, we can start playing music because you're not allowed to play Christmas music before the day after Thanksgiving, and some of you are in sin, you need to repent of playing Christmas music too early. But now it's time, and this next month is to be great, but I don't know, Friday as we're doing all this, just something seemed different. And I don't know exactly what it is, something to do with all that we've been through, I don't know. But it is Christmas season. And it's not just about feeling a certain thing as people. It's true. It's based on real hope and real joy and a real Savior, a real incarnation of God himself, and a real perfect life lived, and a real death, and a real resurrection, and a real king who is reigning in heaven. All of those things are true. We need to be full of joy this Christmas season and give the message of hope, tell the message of hope, the good news to those who are right now enslaved to the king of darkness. And God has given us the call to bring them into the kingdom of light through preaching the gospel. That's our mission, and it's a great mission. It's hard. And just like the Israelites were right up against the Jordan River, and they could do that, they could walk there on their own, but they couldn't cross the Jordan River in their own strength. You can invite someone over you can set up a meeting, you can meet with them out on the, on the driveway, and you can preach the gospel. That's what you can do, but you can't change their hearts. And that's where we trust God and say, Lord, you have the power, the same power that separated that river. Your power can change these hearts so that they will cry out in faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our mission. It's a better mission than Israel ever had. So church, as we enter this Advent season, as we think about Joshua,
let's remember the old covenant was a good covenant. But the, old, the new covenant is better. Better mediator, better promises, better hope, better mission. That's our covenant. Let's be faithful as Joshua and the Jews were at this time. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to look with our own eyes It's easy for us to walk in our own strength. But we want to be people who walk by faith, not by sight. We want to be people who take your mission seriously, who have the same faith as those priests willing to walk out into the water, who believe that you would part the river. We want to be messengers of hope and joy to a people that are so desperate for it right now. And, and those who have some joy and hope, they're, they're finding it in the wrong places, in government or in institutions or in their own self-worth. All of those things will fail, but you will never fail. May we have the courage and the love to preach those things. Father, I pray for Frack. I pray for this family that you will move us proclaim the glory of the new covenant to people who desperately need to hear it. I pray this in Jesus' name.